Um, we're in Matthew chapter 18, and I want to give you a little background on the passage before we get started because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a strange passage. It's, we kind of have an understanding. We think we know what it's about, and, and it is, but it isn't. So, I mean, the, the, everything from who's the greatest in the kingdom to if your arm causes you to sin, cut it off, to uh, little children, don't hinder them from coming to me and anyone who caused one to sin, to how many times you forgive your brother. We're not going to be talking specifically about that passage because I think you're familiar with it. And then the parable of the unmerciful servant, some guy who owes God three to ten lifetimes worth of wages or owes a king, and the king forgives it. He got even asked for it to be forgiven, but he forgives lifetimes of wages, and then he, that guy goes out and chokes another guy who owes him a few days' wages. Um, it's a, it, 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 I keep wanting to say it's a strange section of Scripture. It's not strange, but our, our understanding of it might, might be off a little bit. And I'm not trying to tell you that you don't know, like I know better, that's not it, but here's the, here's the role of a preacher, we're to do, and I'm going to use these two big words, exegesis and hermeneutic, okay? Here's what, it, there's the them, first century Judaism, the people that received the scriptures, and there, there's the us, 21st century American Christians. The job of a preacher is to find out or to do the research, to do the study, and as best he or she can, find out what the text meant in the original context. The people that read it or the people that heard it um, originally. So the, the, the vernacular that Jesus uses is, is, is the kind of the idiom or the, the way of speaking of the time. So they understand certain things that he says in a different way than we do. And then that job, that's the exegesis, to find out what it meant to them. And then the job of a preacher is once he knows that, to try to translate that to what does it mean to us today? Here's the thing that I want you all, if you, I hate it when people say this, but if you only hear one thing today, hear this. What the scriptures meant, the scripture means. It means what it meant. So if it was true then, our culture might be different, but if it were true then, it's true now. So the scripture means what it meant. Just like when we, some people think of the Constitution this way, that the, that the law means what it meant to the people when it was authored. It doesn't necessarily mean something else. So the scriptures mean what they meant, period. And the reason we, the reason we have this thing, this art called preaching or homiletics is that, that God, for, through his people, set aside certain people to study the scriptures, to find out what it meant, and to pray and seek God to know how to make it mean the same thing today in our culture. So some background on that. Um, there's going to be some things that Jesus says about children, about little ones. And I want you to know he is talking about children, but he isn't. It is about children, but it's not. So to understand what he's getting at, we need to understand a little bit about how, how they viewed children in the first century Middle Eastern area. Very different than we do today. So, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb here, and it might make some people a little bit angry, but in, in some ways, our culture in particular, the Christian culture uh, in the United States, we worship 
children. I don't, we don't bow down, and, but we are willing to do. When my daughter was born, she's 26 neck in May, right, Lynn? 26, okay. Born in 92, but I got to do the math in my head. When I held her, I made some promises to her in my head and in my heart. And one of them was to be her spiritual shield as she grows up. Now, I, obviously, that's Christ's job, not specifically mine. But, um, but I'm gonna, my job is to cover her in the spiritual realm to prepare her to meet and to then bond together with a godly man who will then take that role from me. I vowed that I would sacrifice anything personally to make sure that she becomes the person that God wants her to be. And I would have done any, anything. And the same with my son. It's a little bit different with sons and daughters, but, but I, I was willing to do anything. And we go so far, we will do, we will do anything for our children. I mean, I, we, I'm a pastor. And, and, and then I was in the Christian Reformed Church where Sunday morning worship is this huge thing. Like you can't miss it. But we were willing to allow our son to play travel soccer. Rick Petzak, who's one of our elders here, he on a couple of occasions had to take my son to a tournament up Traverse City area because I had to preach. But it was okay if my son went to play soccer on the Lord's Day. I mean, and I, I'm not trying to come down on anybody. I'm just saying, let's just take a look. At how we see, we're willing to do anything for them to be happy. And then take it and look at the first century, the way they looked at children. It wasn't so that they could be happy. They looked at children as being, they were blessed by God, the more children they had. So if you're a farmer and you have more children, the reason you feel blessed because you have lots of children isn't because those children, it's because they help the family. That's more workers for the field. And they help the family grow economically. They help the family um, see, become something bigger and more notable. And everybody sees with all the children that God has blessed them. So if you're barren or infertile, it looks like God doesn't love you. So they saw children as a means by which the family can continue, <clears throat> not as the, the, the object of our deepest affection. So children in their, in, in their world didn't have rights. And I'm not saying that, that, that we shouldn't allow our children to have a voice. That's not it at all. I think scripture's pretty clear on how we're supposed to raise our children up. But then their children didn't have, they could not better themselves in any way without the will of their parent. They could not have, they couldn't say, this is what I want. And parents go, well, let's see. Um, yeah, you want a Ferrari? No, maybe a Fiat. It didn't, that, those kind of conversations didn't happen. In fact, God made it very clear in Genesis with Abraham when he had his son Isaac, the son that he waited a lifetime for. God said, it says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Abraham, yes, my Lord. Take your son Isaac, whom you love, your only son. Take him to a place that I will tell you about. And, and he, three or four times, God says, your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, whom you love, whom you love. So there's this idea that God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, you might love Isaac more than you love me. And so he tested Abraham to see if Abraham was willing to, to trust his son before the Lord instead of protecting his son. That's a big difference between how they saw children and how we do. And the reason we need to know that is because the call that Jesus is giving his disciples in this passage, when he talks about children, he's talking about children, but he's not. He's talking about us. He's talking about his disciples. So to understand that a child has no rights of their own in that century is very different 
than ours. So to understand what it meant to them so that we can understand what it means to us, some of that context is necessary. It reads like this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, (laughs) but understand their context. Rabbis thought certain ways, taught certain things, and Jesus, it looks like he's actually going to have a kingdom. And so they're trying to figure out where do they land? Who's, how, if, 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 if the king is sitting at the table, how far down the table do they sit? They want to know. How do you get all that you got coming to you? And what do we have to do to prove ourselves to you so that, you, so that we become great in your kingdom? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Oh, he's talking about little kids. And he is. The horrible things that people do in our culture to children. The abuse, the neglect, the molestation. I think that there's a special spot in hell for people who do to the innocent evil. But remember what Jesus says here. Unless you change and become like that, what is like that to them? A child has no rights of their own. We love rights. I mean, we have, the, we have the right of association. We have the right of speech. We can practice our religion. We have the right to not, to, to not be subject to, um, to, to illegal search and seizure. We have the right to not be punished unjustly or cruel in unusual ways. We, now we seem to have the right to not be offended. Everything has changed, and we are consumed with rights. And I'm as American as they come. I mean, 245 pounds of USDA ribeye. I didn't choose prime cut because there's a little bit more marbling going on in me. I mean, I, I am, I'm as patriotic as they come, but I'm first a citizen of heaven. And then I have rights that are given to me by God and, and, and enforced by this governing system. But we love our rights. But Jesus is telling his disciples with a child standing there, and I'm assuming it's a boy, although I don't know. And he says, if you don't change and become like him... What is like him? Small? Humble. Realize that we have no rights. And I don't mean that we have no rights in our governing body. I mean, when you become a Christian, when you become a disciple of Christ, you give up your right to self-determination. You give up your right to your money. To where you live in the, my daughter, next week, a week from tomorrow, and her, and her husband, Matt, who's, late, who's a son, they are going, they're following God's call, and they're going half, actually, as far away from me on this planet as they can go. They're going to New Zealand for two years to serve God. Why? Because they want to? Yeah, but because the Lord put the will in their heart and in their mind, and he's provided the resources for them to go and serve him anywhere he says. 
Send me, Lord. Pray to the Lord to harvest, for the, for the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Well, a couple of them are living in my house right now. And then they're going away. And you know that in New Zealand and then Papua New Guinea, where they'll do some of their outreach, they have spiders that are this big. She's my daughter. My son is working in Australia on the, on the Sunshine Coast at a banana farm. And he's tying small banana trees to large banana trees. And seven of the nine most venomous snakes in the world live right there. And there's this thing called the yellowtail spider that lives on banana plants. And if it bites him, he could die. And I have no say over it. Why? Because I'm a disciple of Christ. And my children are not beholding to me, they're beholding to him. And so when he tells a disciple to become like a little one, and he has this young man or this young lady standing there, he's saying, in order to be with Christ, in order to come into the kingdom, we have to change and recognize that God is king and we are subject to him. So our rights are we are children of God heirs to the throne. But our calling is, if the Lord says go, yes, my Lord. If the Lord says stay, yes, my Lord. If the Lord requires us to suffer, yes, my Lord. Because that's how a son in that culture behaves toward his father. They don't have rights. They're subject to being submissive to the will of of the one who is over them. And so when Jesus says, you must change and become like a little one, in fact, anyone who does that will be great. But if you're trying to be great, it's not going to work. And then he goes on to say to those of us who are in relationship with other Christians, if you cause another believer, an innocent an innocent person who's humble in spirit, who's saying, yes, my Lord, if I cause another to sin, it is, he's talking about children, but he's not. It is about that, but it isn't. If I cause a brother in Christ to sin, it's better to have a millstone tied around my neck and drown to the deepest point of the sea. He's saying the servants, the disciples, the followers of Christ, he holds them in such high regard that anybody that causes one of them to mess up, to backslide, to fall away, to grow faithless. Oh, in fact, he uses that word, woe to the world because, things, because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Yay. And there's the old joke, you know, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. I don't see a lot of one-armed blind Christians walking around. Do you think that Jesus means cut off your hand if it caused you to sin? Do you think that Jesus doesn't know that your hand doesn't cause you to sin, that your eye doesn't cause you to sin, that, it's, that it's, your, it's your brain, it's your spirit, it's your soul that makes a decision to be defiant to God? Of course he knows. And they get what's going on there. They understand what he's saying. He's telling them, if you're in relationship with other people 
and they are causing you to sin, get out of that relationship. I'm not saying that you can't be friend to sinners. That's not it at all. In fact, the next part of the scripture is very clear on that. But he is, if, if, if I lose my faith because I decide to wrestle with a pig in the mud, I'm going to get dirty. If I lose my faith because I hang out with people who are, who are and, and surround myself only with people who are, who are defiant to God's will, he tells me right here, if that's my right hand, separate myself. First, he says, if you cause one to sin, woe to you. And then he says, and if you're allowing others to influence you in such a way that they're leading you away from me, cut it off. Stop doing that. See, he has weeks before he goes to be with the Father. He has weeks left before he, before he suffers and dies for us. Before he gives us the grace that we must have in order to be reunited with God the Father. We're, we're told that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but took on the nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Our attitude is supposed to be the same as that, but they don't know this yet. And so they're still, they still have their, their view of their world that tells them that something's going to change here. And it is. Everything's going to change. But in order for it to change, they have to change. Unless you change and become like this, give up your rights to self-determination. Give up your rights to be happy. Give up your rights to your property. Give up your rights to where you might live. And follow me. Remember the rich young man? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, keep the commandments. Do not murder. Love the Lord your God. Oh, I've, I've kept all those since I was a kid. You got a little iPhone out. Yep, 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 yep. To-do list. One thing you lack. Sell everything. Give to the poor. Follow me. Give up your rights. Give up your life. Pick up your cross. We know these things. But he's not kidding. And when he says, you must become like a little one, and woe to you if you call a little, cause a little one to sin, he's talking about children. But he isn't. He's always saying this and this. So for us to become humble, submissive, dependent, instead of arrogant, disobedient, and defiant. It's for them then, and it's for us now. See that you do not look down on, little, on, on one of these little ones. He's talking about children, but he isn't. He's talking about children, but he's talking about people who have submitted themselves to Christ, fellow believers. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of the Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go and look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. And in the same way, your, heavenly, or your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Now, Matthew is quoting Jesus as talking about Christians who've gone astray. Luke, and I believe Jesus said it twice, he just, different context, different thing. Luke, Jesus says, 
the, the, the one that went astray is that black sheep, the one who does not yet know Christ. And, and he goes off to find to rescue one. So here, though, he's talking to his disciples, to you and me, and he's saying, if you wander off, I'm going to pursue you. And if you do turn and come back to me, That's good stuff. But sometimes the 99 feel like they're not being paid attention to. Remember the, 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 the parable of the, it's actually the prodigal father, but we call him the prodigal son, the wayward son whose brother stayed home and he got all mad because the father re, reunited and, and threw a party. It's like, well, but what about me? I've been here the whole time. I haven't ever run away or, or, or got into a life of sin. And, and why, why not me? I'm going to tell you why. Because the gospel is for you. And then it isn't. Grace is for you. And then it isn't. Mercy is for you. And it isn't. And I don't mean that as a negative. It's a positive. But we are to be like Christ. Christian, Christian means little Christs. And so he gives you grace. He calls you in. He, he, he restores you to the Father so that you now have, you're an heir to the throne of God. You are a child of God. And children of God do what God says. And he says that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who... God, but didn't act like it. And so he says to us, once you've received the grace that I have for you, once, once you, re you receive the joy that I have for you, once you receive the peace that I've given you, give it away. Christianity is not about Christians. It's about Christ. And we praise God for that because what if it was about Christians? then it's just a bunch of spoiled children getting anything they want from God whenever they ask for it. He's not Santa Claus. He's the king. And if he says go, we go. If he says stay, we stay. If he says, if he says I, I'm sorry, but it's a time that you're going to have to suffer, take up your cross, then we say, yes, my Lord. See, it's for us. It's to us. And it's through us. Why does he go on right after this? He's got weeks with his disciples. He goes on and he says, if, if your brother sins against you, how many, how many times do we have to forgive someone when they sin against us? Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He goes, hey, seven, seven times 70, 70 times 70, depends on what, what, what passage you're reading and what the translation is. Too many times. Why? Because God showed mercy to me and gave me grace. He forgave me much. And so if I'm a child of his, if I'm not self-determining, but I'm allowing God to determine my identity, my personhood, what I do and where I go, then when someone harms me, as I harmed him, I'm supposed to let them off the hook the same way God lets me off the hook. He talks about this unmerciful servant who didn't even ask to be forgiven, but God forgave him lifetimes of wages. And he, he, he got angry with someone who owed him a couple of days wages. You know what he did to him? He threw him into, the parable says he threw him into prison, sold his family until he could pay back the debt. Now, how's he going to pay back the debt if he's living in prison? So why is Jesus saying this? Because our attitudes need an altitude adjustment. 
It's not about me. It is, but it isn't. It's not about you. It is, but it isn't. See, once we become Christian, he spends the rest of his time with us, blessing us so that we can do his will. And his will is that none of those who were mine would be lost. I told this story a couple of years ago, and I'm going to tell it one more time. My best friend from high school, John Toll, I called him Toll Man. And he didn't call me Walker, he called me Walk. Not a noun. In June or July of 2012, John calls me. And he'd been, a, his words, he'd been a terrible, angry father, a terrible, angry husband. His marriage was over, and I had permission. But he said, he calls and he says, Preacher man, I think I need to get saved. I don't know if you ever know what God's, if it's hard to determine what God's will is sometimes, but if someone calls you and says, I need to get saved, where do you think the Lord's will is for you to be? So I drove to East Grand Rapids. He was 48 years old, moved back in with his parents. I spent a lot of time in this house when I was growing up. We're best friends. And his kids were home. And so we found the quietest place in the house we could, and that was his parents' bedroom. We went up there, and he is just weeping. And this is what he says. I've been walking away for so long, and I've been so angry. It's going to be a long road back. And according to the scriptures, that's a lie. And how it came to me, I don't know, but prayed for wisdom all the way there. John, it doesn't matter how far you've run away. It doesn't matter how long you've been traveling away from God. He's been pursuing you. If you'll just stop and turn around, he's right there. He will embrace you. Just stop. Give up the rights to determine how you're going to live your own life. Turn around. Repentance. I'm going to become dependent. I'm going to be repentant. And God will embrace you. And then you know what he says? Come on. I'll walk back with you. And he's more joyful over John than he was that I've tried to be faithful since we were in high school together. And you know what? So am I. Because Christianity is not about me. It is, but it isn't. It's about the person or people that don't yet know or that know and have walked away. And as his chosen people, Colossians 3, holy and dearly loved, We're to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. We're supposed to forgive whatever grievances we might have against one another, just as Christ forgave us. And over all those virtues, we're supposed to put on love, which binds us together. So Christianity is about you, but it isn't. It's for you, but it isn't. It's, he does something to you, for you, and through you. Little children are dependent, and they have no right to self-determination. Christians are dependent and have no personal right to self-determination because we say, yes, my Lord. Yes, my Lord. Yes, my Lord. And that sounds awful, 
It's very un-American. But who do you think knows better what works in these lives? The one who made them or the one who rebels against the one who made them? Unless you change and become like a little one, it's going to get ugly. So folks, as the person God chose to be the one to preach to you this day, this passage, it's all about you. And then it isn't. Is that the way we see our world? Gimme, gimme, gimme. Oh, Lord, you've given me so much, I want to give it away. If you've been shown mercy, show mercy. Since you've been shown grace, show grace. Since you've been given salvation, share your salvation. If you've been given the spirit of peace, be a peacemaker. And it doesn't matter what those other people look like, sound like, where they live, how they speak, or whether they shower as often as we do. They are children of God that may not know it. Or they have been children of God and they've decided to go la, la, la and run away. It's our job to work with the shepherd to bring them back. Will we do that? Because if Christianity is for us so that we can give it away, then we must. Individually, family by family, corporately. We look up to see what God is doing. We lean in to whatever he has for us. And we lean in for whatever he wants to give us. And then we go wherever the Spirit leads us. We live it out. It is, and it isn't. Let's pray. Lord, you're God, and we're not. You're the Father, and we're the children. You know all. And we subject ourselves to your knowledge, your wisdom, your will. Give us the courage to say, yes, my Lord, no matter what your call in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name, through the spirit that you've given us, for the glory of God our Father, not our own glory. Amen. Two, two quick announcements, then I'll sum up. Um, Tim Custer, a former pastor at this church, a week ago, uh, he wasn't, a couple weeks ago, he wasn't feeling really well. And it's just, it hasn't been something that's been real public, but he's down in Florida and it turned out that he went to the doctor and he's got blockage. He had, I think it was a week ago, Friday, he had uh, triple bypass. So be praying for, for, for Tim and his family. Uh, the other thing is that tonight, uh, what time, Melissa, is the thing tonight? 
6 o'clock. Tonight, um, right here, and this is going to move into my little summary here. Um, we host this thing called Kingdom Ambassadors Lakeshore. Several churches around the area that are trying to find out all that God has for us and all that he wants to do through us. And it's done in uh, it, just some instruction in, in ministry uh, within and from and to the Holy Spirit. And uh, not neglecting the Father or the Son. Not the, Very theologically sound. But at the same time, it might, it, it might stretch you a little bit. So uh, Laura Baker, Pastor Doug's wife, is one of the people that's speaking tonight. So if nothing else, maybe come and encourage her. The reason I'm telling you about that right now is because I know it sounds like in the message that I'm saying that what the, being a child of God is just about doing. But it's not. See, my children know that everything that I have is theirs. My son and daughter-in-law, or my son-in-law and daughter, when they head off, if they need anything in my home for their, they know it. I'm going to, of course, of course, everything that I have is theirs. Why? Because I love them. But if, am I going to give them everything that I have if they're going off to, 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 to evangelize for the enemy of God? Of course not. They don't get to use God's stuff for wrong. You're a child of God. Everything that he has is yours. So we should find out everything that he wants for us. And we should find out everything he wants to give us that he wants us to give away. That is the call of Christianity. That is what it means to be a servant of the Most High God. To become like a little one, dependent, humble, and taking orders from our Father. Let us be a people who says, yes, my Lord. The Lord bless you and he has, keep you, and he does, make his face shine on you, be gracious, that means to give you grace, the Lord turned his countenance for you, so look on God's face, and God looks at his children and smiles, and he gives you peace, and all of God's people say, amen, go with it and the peace of Christ.